Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you would like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Post office is a madhouse in the month of December. First, you get there and can't even find a parking spot, so you just kind of hover, do your flying patterns around, wait until there's finally a landing place for you. Then I kind of try to walk inside, but I can barely fit inside the door because everybody within a five-mile radius of the post office is there at the exact same time. Everybody from crying babies up to an elderly man behind me with a walker. They're all there. Everyone's coming out. Everyone's sending off their Christmas cards. It's actually something I respect about the post office, though, because it doesn't really matter who you are or where you come from. That line is an equalizer. You're waiting in that same line no matter how cool you think you are or what your background is. And so I had this opportunity, right? I had this amazing opportunity to ponder the virtue of patience, the nature of Advent, when we wait not just for stamps, but for the return of Jesus. And if I'm honest, though, I didn't quite pass with flying colors. (laughs) Frankly, I was just bored. I was impatient. I was upset with the people in front of me for taking so long, and I was just trying not to stare at people too much. (laughs) It was only afterward that I came across this amazing prayer um, in a book called Every Moment Holy. It's a book full of these everyday prayers that I really recommend. Um, And it has a prayer in there called A Liturgy for Waiting in Line. I kid you not. (laughs) And I just want to read a couple lines of this prayer, as I think it's appropriate. As my life is lived in anticipation of the redemption of all things, so let my slow movement in this line be to my own heart a living parable in a teachable moment. Be present in my waiting, O Lord, that I might also be present in it. As a Christ-bearer to those before me and behind me who also wait. As I am a vessel, let me not be like a sodden paper cup full of steaming frustration, carelessly sloshing unpleasantness on those around me. Rather, let me be like a communion chalice, reflecting the silvered beauty of your light, brimming with an offered grace. Amen. Wow, right? (laughs) When I read that prayer, I'll tell you what, I was convicted because I don't know about you, but when I have to wait, when I'm in line, or when I have to wait for more important things, I'm in a hurry. I'm not a naturally patient person. And I feel a whole lot more like a wet paper cup sloshing unpleasantness on people than I feel like a communion chalice bearing Christ's presence. I did not do a great job of bearing Christ's presence to the man with the walker and to the crying babies that day. Waiting's hard. And frankly, we do not know how to do it well in our instant society in particular. All it takes to frustrate me and to make me feel impatient is for a web page to take 15 seconds to load. <laughs> Completely forgotten how bad it was with dial-up not that long ago. And yet waiting is what Advent is about. And I'm sure many of you or your kids are waiting for Christmas to finally get here, but we're not there yet. Advent is meant to teach us that waiting actually characterizes our entire lives. It's not just for this season. It's our lives as we wait for the same Jesus that was born in Bethlehem to return and to set right all of the brokenness 
that we see around us in our world and in our lives. We're waiting, as we sing, for the Son of God to appear. We're waiting for him to bid envy and strife and quarrels to cease and to fill this world with heaven's peace. We are waiting, friends. And this is much harder than simply waiting in line. So how do we live in this Advent age, this age of waiting for thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? How do we live right now? We're in luck. Because today's reading from this unfolding Christmas story, a reading from the Gospel of Luke, the story of Mary's visit from her cousin Elizabeth to her cousin Elizabeth, teaches us how to wait. Mary and Elizabeth, two women who are among the heroes of our faith, and also the babies in their wombs, show us what it looks like to wait for God in an unfinished world. Our passage starting in Luke 1.39, and you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me if you have it with you. The passage takes place immediately after Elizabeth and Mary find out that they are going to give birth to two very important children. Even though Elizabeth is elderly and barren, and Mary is a virgin, not yet married. And sure enough, both women conceive. But this passage takes place before either one of them has actually given birth. And at this point, Elizabeth is about six months pregnant, and Mary maybe just a few days or a few weeks. In other words, this momentous visit takes place during the pregnant time between the promise of God and its fulfillment. It's a story about the already and the not yet. It's a story about Advent, about the time in between. It's a story about our time. Like Elizabeth and Mary, we live in the space between the promise of God and its complete fulfillment. And if we would become people who, like the prayer says, would be Christ-bearers to those who come before and behind us who also wait, I think there's no better place for us to look than to Mary, the one who literally bore Christ to Elizabeth, her cousin, who went before her, and bears Christ to us who come after her. So let's look at the passage together. I just want to read it again and get it fresh in our minds. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her, his promises to her. Now, even though this is a short scene, I think there's a lot here. But I just want to look at three main things, three main ways that these holy women show us how to be people who wait. And they all have to do with the way we respond to God's promise, as Elizabeth alluded to. First, we're called to trust in God's promise. Second, we're called to carry God's promise. And finally, we're called to rejoice in the promise of God. So first, trusting in God's promise. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. 
This is the last thing that Elizabeth says to Mary in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a powerful blessing, I think, coming from her in particular, because it's her own husband, Zechariah, who had failed to believe when the angel came to him and told him that his elderly wife was about to be a mother. God's words did not fit into Zechariah's pre-established way of seeing the world, didn't fit into his categories of what's possible and what's impossible. And so he doubted. Mary, meanwhile, when the angel came to her and told her what was about to happen, responded by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary believes without hesitation that God is going to do what God said. Virgin pregnancy does not fit into her categories any more than it does for Zechariah. But to Mary, God's power and faithfulness was what determined what is possible and impossible. And so when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her elderly cousin Elizabeth is also six months pregnant, she believes that too. She believes it so deeply that she immediately gets up and makes a rough three-day journey, mostly by foot, to go see her. I mean, can you imagine traveling three days to go do anything or to see anyone? I mean, I was thinking about this. It literally, there's no place on the world today that it actually takes three days to get to anymore. Our team is going to Rwanda in the summer, and it takes them just under two days to get there. Three days of travel. To Mary, God's promise was not just theoretical. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just a nice idea to feel about and feel heartwarmed about once a year at Christmas. It was solid ground to act on. Mary's faith was not just in her head. It went down to her feet. And so when Mary comes to her cousin's home, Elizabeth sees immediately the difference between her and her doubting husband. And she blesses her for her faith. Elizabeth saw in Mary the same faith that Abraham had, the father of the Jewish people whose story is told in the book of Genesis. Abraham was called by God one day to get up and to leave his entire home country and to follow God. And he was promised a blessing that would flow through him to the entire world as a result. And so he got up immediately, like Mary, and went where God called him. And then like Elizabeth and Zechariah, God promised him a miraculous child for him and his wife in Sarah's very old age. And the Apostle Paul writes that without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, from Romans 4. Mary and Abraham's faith meant placing their hope outside of themselves, outside even the accepted categories they had of what's possible and what's impossible. The basis of their lives became not what they could do, but what God could do, and specifically what God had promised. They bet everything, their lives, their families, their money, their time, their reputations, even their very bodies, on the fact that God's words were more reliable than anything and anyone. And as a result, they were deeply blessed by God. I think this is the only way that living a life of waiting is remotely possible. How can we wait for somebody that we don't trust? 
everything for us stands or falls on the reliability of God's promises. If Christ's promise to return and set this world right once and for all, if that's pretty iffy, then frankly, we've got better things to do with our Sunday mornings. Why even waste our time, even though it doesn't take us three days to get here, hopefully? Do we really believe that we can stake our entire lives on God's promises being true? Or do we hedge our bets, moderate our expectations to limit the possibility of being let down? Does our hope rest in what we read in the news or in our own strength or what we think is possible? Or is our hope in what God has promised us? When we have the faith of Mary, we look away from ourselves to the one who has the power to do what he has promised. And in this sense, I think real faith serves as a sort of a signpost. It serves as a signpost. It points to the faithfulness of the promiser and the promised one. True faith bears witness to the trustworthiness of God. That's a radical sign in this world. And Mary's not the only one in this passage who does this. Elizabeth also points to God when she makes this amazing claim that her young cousin is the mother of her Lord. What a confession of faith. And even baby John the Baptist, still an infant in his mother's womb, he offers his first act of pointing to Jesus when he leaps with joy at Mary's greeting. He knows who is there. And that baby John would grow up into a man whose entire life's work would be pointing away from himself like the icon with a gigantic pointer finger. That's a theologically important pointer finger. Pointing away from himself to the true hope of the world, Christ the Lord, that is what his life is about and what ours is called to be as well. So Mary, Elizabeth, even baby John, show us that the first thing that has to happen for us to have a prayer of being awaiting people is to trust God's promise and to allow our trust to be a signpost to God's faithfulness. But they also show us that we're also called to carry that promise and to even be an instrument of that promise to other people. Like we saw earlier, Mary's faith wasn't just about words or ideas. Mary's faith led to action. It was a faith that went down to her feet and made her get up and go. We're called not just to trust God's promise and bear witness with our words, we're actually called to act on God's promise and allow his blessing to flow through us. As the prayer said earlier, we're called to be Christ bearers, vessels like a communion chalice that brim with an offered grace of God. Mary literally carried Christ to Elizabeth and to John and blessed them to the point that they were leaping with joy. But Elizabeth also is filled with God and is a vessel for God to flow through her. God, the Holy Spirit. And she blesses Mary with the blessing of the Spirit through her words. As theologian Leslie Newbigin puts it, we're not just meant to be a sign of the kingdom through our faith and our proclamation. We're also called to be an instrument of the kingdom, vessels of the kingdom. Even though we live in waiting, it's not a passive waiting. Mary's faith was not passive. Abraham's faith was not passive. They didn't just receive the promise. They practiced it. We are called to practice the promise as well. As we wait for Christ's return to heal our broken world and our hearts, we're called to be instruments of healing in ways both big and small.
our actions matter. Lynn and I had the chance last night to see um, probably our favorite Christmas movie, one of my top five favorite movies of all time, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And the main character, for those of you who are familiar, George Bailey, his entire life is made up of these small actions that to him feel pretty meaningless, feel pretty useless. He works crazy hours for pennies at the local building and loan shop. But even though he feels like a failure, he's able to help people get a roof over their heads and restore dignity to their lives. And in the climax of the movie, he's given a chance to see just what an impact his daily life has led to. The impact that his daily life of carrying Christ, even when he doesn't even realize he's doing it, into the life of the world around him. When Christ returns, all of our lives' work will be judged. That's a scary thought. It really is. And then we tend to focus, I think, mostly on the negative side of that. But think about the positive side of that. Have you ever thought about this? That our lives' work will be judged, but everything that we do that truly is an instrument of God's kingdom, that's in alignment with God's promises, that contributes to the fulfillment of God's promises in this world, everything that we do not only will survive the judgment, will be purified by it, and will last into eternity in the new creation to come. The things that we do to put little pieces of our world back together will last for eternity in new creation. As Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be dissolved in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. I think Peter's saying that when we live as practicers of the promise, instruments, vessels of the kingdom, we're able to wait with eagerness for our Lord's return because we have hope that one day righteousness will at last be at home in our world again, and we get to be a part of that. So we're called to trust in the promise. We're also called to carry the promise. But finally, we are also called to rejoice in the promise of God. Have you ever wondered why Mary goes to see Elizabeth? Because when the angel came to her, he didn't tell her to go do that. It was entirely her call. It was entirely Mary's decision. And it wasn't because she needed proof that the angel was telling the truth. Mary believed. We've already seen that. I think it's because the deepest joys in life are meant to be shared. As one of the kids said, we're meant to talk with our friends. I think that Mary needed to celebrate with Elizabeth. C.S. Lewis writes about how praising something that we enjoy, like giving voice to something that's awesome, is actually part of the enjoyment itself. It actually takes our enjoyment to the next level. Right? When you, something amazing happens to you, or you read an amazing book, or you see an amazing movie, or you come across this hilarious joke, What's the first thing you got to do? You got to tell somebody, right? 
It's just a natural impulse. True joy is meant to be expressed, and it's meant to be shared. As the old saying goes, joy shared is double joy. Grief shared is half grief. But why were Mary and Elizabeth this joyful? Because they hadn't given birth yet. Pregnancy is a time of promise, but it can also be a time of fear and uncertainty, particularly for a woman as old as Elizabeth or as young as Mary. All of the promises about Jesus becoming king and ruling the world in justice, all of these too were a long way off from being fulfilled. The world surrounding this meeting between Elizabeth and Mary was dark, just as dark as our world today. So why is John already leaping in the womb? And Elizabeth joyfully bursting out into the song of the Spirit, and Mary bursting out into this amazing song, the Magnificat. I think it's because when we receive God's promise, even though it looks to the future, it changes the present. It changes the present. When we receive the promise of God and we know it to be true, a new reality already begins to break into our life. As Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, new creation is there. The old has gone and the new has come, even now in this world. So that's why when Mary breaks out in her revolutionary song, the Magnificat, she keeps using the past tense. Did you notice that? She's able to sing that God has looked with favor on her. God has shown strength and scattered the proud. God has lifted up the lowly. God has brought down the powerful. She sings of God's promise of the coming kingdom through her son as if it's already happened, as if it's already there. Because to her, the promise that God gave her was a guarantee of a new reality. The world was different. The game was changed, and she sang and she rejoiced because of it. As Newbegin puts it, we're called not just to be a sign of the kingdom, not just an instrument of the kingdom, but also a foretaste of the kingdom, a foretaste. So in our life together in this age of waiting for the fulfillment of all that God's promised, we're meant to have a taste now of the future that is to come. It's part of the reason that we worship together. The other day, I was stressed trying to get some stuff done before the end of the year, working from home and kind of just ready for the year to be done. And all of a sudden, I started getting a whiff of something incredible, chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I needed it. I hadn't seen the cookies yet. I didn't even know they were being made, except that I could smell them. And just that smell was enough to completely change my mood, picked me up, got me through the task that I had to do, and carried me through the next day. It doesn't take much. I'm a man of simple pleasures. Um, many thanks to Lena, by the way. They're delicious cookies. That first whiff, though, right? Like that first taste of a meal that's about to come, that is what we are meant to share together in this age of waiting. We don't just wait with stiff upper lips. We're meant to wait with joy because we know that the cookies are coming. We know that Christ is going to return. This world will be set right the sickness, death will be undone. Righteousness at last will be at home. And that knowledge changes everything. We can rejoice together in God's goodness and even become the aroma of Christ 
to other people. So we're called to be a sign, an instrument, a foretaste of God's coming kingdom in this age while we wait. Trusting, carrying, rejoicing in God's promise. But I do think we need to ask one last question. How is it that Mary and Elizabeth in particular were so ready and able to do this? Because this is hard. I mean, I'm preaching, it is hard. Because also from the perspective of the world, the wisdom of the world, I mean, this is kind of an unlikely pair to be paying attention to. You know, with all the great happenings of the world powers and the consequential actions of the rulers in the world, you know, why would we take the time to pay attention to this small, intimate scene between two women entirely unknown to the powerful people of their day? I mean, think about all the political, the military rulers, the philosophers, the scholars that have shaped history over the course of the past 2,000 years. How is it that these two are the ones we look to to find out how to wait in the midst of the difficulties of our world. We recently talked in our last sermon series about how God's wisdom is not like the wisdom of our world. And I think it is no accident that today God would have us fix our eyes, not on the 24-hour news cycle, but on two women on the margins of society. Not on the grand chess moves of the empires, but in the intimate space of Zechariah's home the intimate space between Elizabeth and Mary, all the way even into the intimate space of a mother's womb. Because Mary's child grew up, and he taught us that his kingdom is not of this world. It's a hidden kingdom that comes through sacrificial love, not the force of empire. Because the powerful and important of our world, they're not able to wait for the promise of God. They're too busy too impatient, too sure of their own abilities, and too invested in the way things are to be open to receiving the promise of something radically new. And for those of us who feel powerful and important and comfortable, Mary and Elizabeth are a prophetic wake-up call. They are that to me. But for those of you today who are here who feel small, who feel broken, Take heart. For many of you, I know Christmas is not a happy time. It's a time of pain and a time of mourning. Many of you are here today, coming to the end of the year with a smile on your face, but a deep, heavy sadness in your hearts. Many of you feel like God could never love you. God could never use you. You feel too sick, too young, too old too addicted, too far gone. If that is you, take heart, friends. You are in a better position than most to receive the promise of God's radically new kingdom, the promise of God turning this world upside down. I want to end with a short poem about Mary and Elizabeth that I think brings a lot of these things together. It's called Hidden Joys, a Sonnet for the Visitation by Malcolm Geith. Here is a meeting made of hidden joys, of lightnings cloistered in a narrow place. From quiet hearts, the sudden flame of praise, and in the womb, the quickening kick of grace. Two women on the very edge of things, 
unnoticed and unknown to men of power. But in their flesh, the hidden spirit sings, and in their lives, the buds of blessing flower. And Mary stands with all we call too young. Elizabeth, with all called past their prime. They sing today for all the great unsung, women who turned eternity to time, favored of heaven, outcast on the earth, prophets who bring the best in us to birth. We live in a world that is not yet right. But in the meantime, I pray that we would look to Elizabeth and to Mary to learn how to trust, to carry, and to rejoice in the promise of God. Amen.